All right, and I'm going to ask uh, Tim if he would come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. Okay, our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. God, we thank you again for this time. God, we thank you for your word. As we open your word and, God, uh, study together, uh, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we would um, understand this passage rightly, um, that you would apply it to our hearts in in a true fashion. God, that we would... Um, learn, that we would be convicted, that we would grow, grow closer to you um, because of what we see here today. God, we thank you for the way you bless us in your word. Um, again, we pray for uh, our county, 
um, our community um, as as the word has gone forth uh, this uh, this Lord's day, and we pray that you would uh, God that your word would be living and active, um, that it would um, God that it would not return void, um, that it would change hearts uh, and lead people in righteousness. Everywhere that the word is preached uh, in our community, in our state, in our country, in the world. We thank you for uh, your mercy uh, that is found in in the application of your word by the spirit to our hearts. Uh, We thank you. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So um, I'll kind of start out on, I guess, a personal note uh, to say. um, So in in my own kind of devotional Time this week, and in, in in my prayer, and and just sort of um, kind of dealing with my own stuff, and 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 whatever, um, I've kind of been thinking on and praying on the reality of my own spiritual life, and probably something that you have experienced as well. Um, I just feel like I find myself frequently convicted of sin, convinced of the truth. Of, of something in scripture, the importance of something that is presented to me through God's word, compelled even to act on those, those things. Um, but then oftentimes finding that it ends up bearing relatively little fruit in my daily life. Remember what we talked about maybe a few months back when we talked about the parable of the soils and that there were these four soils, the heart soil, the shallow soil, the weedy soil, and, and the good soil. And, 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 I, and I considered about how much of my life on, on a daily basis as I engage with God and his word, how much of my life is basically stuck in either that shallow soil or, or that weedy soil. So we come to the book of Hebrews, and again, we're kind of we're stepping away from Luke just for, just for this week and last week. Um, as we as we celebrated last week Trinity Sunday, and so I've tried to over the last few years do one or two or sometimes three sermons on on the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're sort of zooming in on on the doctrine of Christ in in certain ways. But chapter two of the book of Hebrews begins with a warning, and that connected to my concern as I as I happen to come across this passage in my, in my reading this week. It says in verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So that's what it feels like for me. Um, the truth of God's word strikes me, but, but only at first. Um, and then I, I drift away from what it has said to me. It's an, it's an apt way of saying it, I think, because, because it's, that's exactly what it feels like. Like I just sort of look up and it, and I, and I don't remember or it didn't make a difference or, or the urgency of, of something is, is gone. It's not outright rejection. It's not that I attempt it and then fail and then become discouraged and quit or something like that. It's just like it never, it never comes to fruition. So notice something about this passage. It begins with a therefore in chapter 2. It says, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, the writer of Hebrews explains in, in chapter 1 uh, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And that's, that's a simplistic way of saying all that's in chapter 1. But whereas the Old Testament revelation was understood to have come through angels to, to mankind, 
Jesus is, is the one who has brought us this, this second revelation, this New Testament. And Jesus is no mere angel. He is the Son of God. He's God himself. And there's, there's this beautiful passage, um, rich text, at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 that talks about um, Jesus' uh, deity and exaltation. In verse 3 it says, the, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Man, what, what majestic language to talk about Jesus. And so if, if chapter 1 is sort of focusing on, on the exaltation and ge- deity of Jesus, I think we can probably safely say if, 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 um, if the writer of Hebrews has said, therefore, having said what I said in chapter 1, therefore, we should pay much closer attention, he's talking to believers. He's talking to people who have already believed in these things. He's not warning lost people. He's warning Christians. And so I think um, we can say that not only do we see in chapter 1 this exalted, deified Jesus, Jesus who is God, but in chapter 2 we are still being encouraged to, to not drift away, but, but we are seeing it through the lens of Jesus' excellencies in terms of his incarnation, which what that means is it is how awesome Jesus is in his humanity and the things that he accomplished in his humanity. Chapter 1 is all about how Jesus is, is excellent in terms of his deity. Chapter 2 is about what he has done and how excellent he is in his incarnation. And so the, those things that we see in this passage become the motivation for why we are not to drift away, the reasons why we should pay closer attention, or maybe how we pay closer attention. If we zoom in on these things, these ideas, these reasons, these truths we see about Christ, then we find ourselves, we will be less likely to drift away. And so I think we see four things, and I'll kind of preview them, and then, and then we'll look into them a little closer. We have to, we should focus on what Jesus has done. One, because the salvation that he has provided uh, is, is an escape from the consequences of sin, sin. Because, two, the testimony about him is trustworthy. Three, because the future belongs to Jesus Christ. And four, because of the excellent, and I don't know any better way to say it, because of the excellent roles that he has played, the things that he has become for us as, as followers of Jesus Christ. And so the first three points are about three quarters of the sermon, and then that fourth point has 11 points. Okay, and so what I'm going to try to do is when we get there, I'm just going to go really quick. Okay, because as I got into this text, I was like, man, I could have that last section in here could be three or four sermons. We could we could break that thing down and and talk exhaustively um, about uh, Jesus and and what he has done for us. But we're just going to like hit it bullet points and hopefully it's something that you can go back to and 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 meditate on and, and sort of try to to mine um, for for the truth that's that's found there. So the first thing is 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 there at the beginning of the text. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received its just penalty. So Paul is stating, or I, I say Paul, we don't know for sure that it's Paul, um, but the writer of Hebrews is is stating that in the Old Testament, um, the, the, the Old Testament was was it gave us content, right? It gave us command. Um, it was authoritative and it was unalterable. 
God had given his command, and we were held accountable to that command. And when we look at our lives, we know that there is consequence for sin and disobedience. That's the promises that we see all through God's word. This passage calls that the just penalty for our actions, for our transgressions, for our disobedience. And then he says this in verse 3, if we neglect these things, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I like the way that that phrase is, he doesn't exactly warn us about judgment that is impending. He warns us about neglecting the salvation that has been provided. And this is why I think that's significant. Most people think about salvation and judgment and things like that like there's a judgment day coming. Like there's a day of judgment that we are going to have to stand um, under before trial and give an answer for ourselves. And, and in a sense, that's true. But there's also a very real sense in which that day has already passed. You have already been arrested, booked, arraigned, tried, convicted, sentenced, and, and functionally now we sit waiting on death row. We sit waiting in, in our sin on death row. A life without Christ is, de- is a death sentence. That's already happened. That's already decided. But the way to escape that has been made available, an exit. That's why the Bible talks about freedom in Christ so much. I think we are oftentimes, we think about, we're like, oh, freedom. Freedom in Christ means I can do whatever I want. No, that's not the only context of it. We're talking about freedom from the fact that you were imprisoned, under judgment. And now you have been freed from that in Christ. And so when we stand before God, the answer, what answer are you going to give for your life? There's, there is, there's, there's a word here for both Christians and non-Christians. For the lost person without Christ, the answer is obvious. There is no excuse. There is no justification for our sinful lives. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. But what about for the Christian, the person who has come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, who has trusted in Jesus Christ personally? I think there's still something to be said for that person here because we neglect this great salvation when we ignore or explain away God's commands. When we see the word of God and we know the consequences for disobedience, but because we have this relationship with Christ who has paid for all our sins, somehow we we treat God's word like it's no big deal, that our disobedience is a small thing. We neglect when we, uh, uh, we, we, we neglect when we allow the world to hinder us from bearing the fruit that God has called us to. We ignore what the gospel calls us to do. And the reality is, is there are still consequences for that for a saved person. Not in terms of judgment, but certainly in terms of reward. So, so the writer says, and how will we escape? How, if we neglect such a great opportunity, that's why we must turn to Christ. We must heed his call. We must not drift away. Because the opportunity for salvation is so incredible. The offer of salvation is so incredible. To, to sit and reflect on what we have been offered in Jesus Christ in terms of salvation is it would be crazy to ignore that. But a second reason we find why we should and must turn to Christ and must not neglect these things is found in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. Because it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
it might be helpful to ask why we don't follow as we should, why we feel that way. And it may be because we question the truth or the veracity of God's commands. What I mean by that is, is the reason why we don't follow God the way we should is because we don't really think his word is whatever, true, meaningful, uh, ap- applicable to my life, or whatever. And, I, and I've said this to a, a number of you. I've had this conversation with a number of you before. Um, I see a pattern of, of apostasy that usually looks like this. Not always. There's all kinds of different ways that people walk away from the Lord. But I often see a pattern that looks like this. There is a sin or a disobedience that a person wants to live in. They want to do that. But their conscience is active, and it's convicting them that that thing is wrong, and they're not allowed to do that. And they feel like a hypocrite. And they like feeling like a hypocrite. So what they do is they know they can't just wholeheartedly give themselves to something that the Word says is wrong, so then their heart begins to undermine the Word so that they can feel less bad about it. And so it goes through a process. It often starts with, with questioning the Old Testament scriptures. We start saying things, well, surely Jesus didn't mean that, or, or surely the text has been mistranslated, or certainly somebody augmented it and added to it later on, or certainly we've moved on beyond this, this, um, this, this text or this command. It's just not binding anymore. Maybe the whole thing's just made up. Maybe the whole thing's just a lie. And once the authority of Scripture is safely done away with, then I can feel guilt-free to live as I please. Except here's the thing. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us that the text of Scripture, the witness of Scripture is trustworthy. That who the Bible says Jesus is and what the gospel is and how we are saved and how it's tied to the accounts that we find in Scripture is trustworthy. First off, he says in verse 3 that we have this eyewitness account. We have to remember that, that the things that we find in Scripture are not just documents that were made up and written down years later. These are people's eyewitness accounts of what happened, things that they saw, things that they saw Jesus do, the risen Christ. They saw with their own eyes. And these are, these are people, it was, it was attested to numerous people, people who had little to gain by lying, coming up with some sort of grand conspiracy particularly because it eventually cost most of them their lives. So there are these eyewitnesses. There are miracles and signs and wonders that took place. And so the question would be, how else do you explain these things that happened if it is not for God? We've seen throughout Luke that God uses miracles to give us understanding, to show us his power, to get our attention in certain ways. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying we've seen have accounts of all these miracles that took place. How do you explain these if it's not for the reality of Christ? And then lastly, he says, it is the testimony of the Spirit to us. And the testimony of the Spirit, particularly in his giving of gifts to his people. And so you can, you can look at that in a couple of different ways. Certainly it's talking about the application of these truths to our hearts by the Spirit. The fact that we, we the Spirit causes us to believe these things. But also, you know, we see... You've seen people's lives changed by this stuff, right? You've seen people's lives changed by who Jesus Christ is. That's the Holy Spirit working and gifting them in their life. And the question is, when you have seen these things and now you attribute it to what? To nothing? That Christ is not who he says he is and the gospel doesn't do what it says it does? 
That's, that's not the case. We can trust the account that we have. And because it is so trustworthy, because we have these multiple avenues, these diverse testimonies and witnesses as to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ and the gospel, then the writer is again saying, and how can you reject these things? How can you fall away? If you will focus on the veracity of these truth claims and the witnesses to them, it should make it easier to believe and harder to drift away. Some of you are familiar with with uh, Pastor uh, Bodie Bauckham. And so Bodie has kind of gotten a lot of press in recent uh, months and years because of his his comments on intersectionality and critical race theory and stuff like that. But about 20 years ago is when he came onto the scene in in the Baptist world, and and it was through talking about this very issue. And so he made this comment that sort of like got some some traction and people quoted down through the years. He says, "I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents." written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that give a report of supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecy and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Okay? If you wanted a way to sum up that passage that we just read in verses 3 and 4, that would be a pretty good way of saying it. And so we, we should trust in Jesus Christ. Because of the, the truthfulness of and the witness of these claims. A third reason that is connected with Jesus' coming in his, and his incarnation, but probably the one that is most connected also with his deity, is the fact that one day Jesus is going to rule. You should get on board with this Jesus person because one day he is going to rule everything. Second half of verse 8, now in putting everything under, everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Though at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We've talked about it a couple times over the last few weeks and months, but that is a poignant text for this thing that is going on in our culture right now about being wanting, uh, being obsessed with the idea of legacy and wanting to make sure that you end up on the right side of history is the way the line goes. The implication being that history is this, this thing flowing in a definite direction, and, and if you try to fight against it, you're just going to end up being remembered as a rube or a bigot or a fundamentalist or a Neanderthal or, or something like that. Here's the thing, though. Thinking about your legacy is wise. Wanting to be on the right side of history is, is a wise thing. We should consider which side of history we are going to be on. The problem enters in when we think our powers of prediction overshadow the predestined and announced will of God. Because here's the deal. The future is Christian. Completely, unabashedly, unreservedly Christian. I don't know if America's future is Christian, but human history's future is Christian. It does not belong to the forces of secularity. It does not belong to a world of unbelief. It does not belong, this text says, to angels, whether fallen or faithful. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And so everything will be in subjection to him. Nothing will be outside of his control in the end. 
The problem is, is we say things like, yeah, but Ash, I don't want my kids to think I'm an idiot. You know, I don't want them to think that I believed in this dumb fairy tale of, of, of Christianity. Here's what you should be more worried about. Don't worry as much about what your grandkids think. Worry more about what's going to happen on the day that you have to stare God in the face, that you stand before Jesus Christ and have to explain why you are way more concerned about man's opinions of you than you were about what God had told you. Notice the acknowledgement in the passage. He says, basically, it sure doesn't look like Jesus is in control of everything. It sure doesn't look like he is ruling everything right now. And we know that to be true. In many sectors of life, it, it doesn't look like Jesus has any control over things. And let's be honest, that makes this hard. It makes it hard to hold the line. It makes it hard to not retreat, not surrender, when it looks like you're about to be overrun. It looks like everything you're going to, you believe is going to come up empty. It looks like you're going to be the last man standing. But recognize your perception of events is wrong. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, God wins. Jesus will rule. There is something more critical than being on the wrong side of history, and that is being on the wrong side of eternity. Because our eternal future has Christ on the throne. And so for that very reason, you must not slip away. You must not allow yourself to be distracted. You must heed the call of Christ. And finally, in this, this long extended section, we see that if we will just look to the excellencies of Christ, we will see the attractiveness, the, the, the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, and that will draw us in, right? That will keep our attention focused and help us to not fall away. Particularly through his incarnation, Jesus has become everything that we ever needed. The Incarnation is probably, it's one of the most important doctrines of the faith. It is something that I think would be the case is that we would, that, that it, it's one of those deal breaker kind of issues, right? To, to misunderstand the, the Incarnation is to misunderstand Christianity uh, and, and, and forfeit the faith. In a general way, we can talk about how Jesus' Incarnation uh, resulted in him not only leading the way for us, but walking the walk for us. That Jesus doesn't only tell us what to do, that he leads us by example, and in fact does those things in our place when we understand it rightly. Jesus' association with his people, his connection to them is a source of wonder for us, a source of comfort for us on a daily basis. And as we're talking about, man, it is the motivation to heed the call of Christ and to pay closer attention to the things that we have heard. And so Jesus revealed is revealed to be at least 11 things. I said I could probably go through and say more than that if we break it down more, between verses 9 and 18. And we could go sermons. I could do three or four sermons on this passage, but I'm just going to kind of hit them real quick as we go through. Things for us to, to, to uh, look to, things for us to glean um, about who Jesus is, the rich, rich passage um, and truths that we find in this place. Number one, he is the one who has condescended. 
He's the one who stepped down out of heaven um, to be by your side. Verse 9 says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That Jesus was exalted in heaven, and yet he has stepped down and taken on flesh to be with us. He is the crowned one. The What's the, what's the past tense of coronate? Coronation. Coronated? That's not, that's not a word, right? Uh, is coronated? Is that right? Okay, cool. It doesn't sound like it's right. He's the coronated one. He's the crowned one. That's what I said. I wanted, I wanted that coronate in there. Verse 9b says, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering death, the suffering of death. We look to one who has been exalted, who's been crowned, who's been his, his uh, rule and leadership has been acknowledged. Moreover, he is our substitute so that by the grace of God, we might, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus has stepped into our place. He has died in our place. He's become the perfect substitute for us in terms of, of, of God's right judgment on our sin. Jesus is our designer. That sounds like a weird way to say it too, but verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. What does it mean that Jesus is for whom and by whom all things exist? That means that your life, what it's supposed to look like, who you're supposed to be, um, how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to live, all of those things have already been determined by the God who created you and loved you and formed you for a specific reason. If you don't mind me um, comparing you to a dog for a second, I don't mean that in a bad way. Have you ever noticed how if you've, if you've been around working dogs, right, if you've been around uh, um, dogs who hundreds of years of breeding have designed them to do something specific, what we notice is this. I mean, they get anxious and they get destructive when they're not doing what they were designed to do. Pointers want to stalk. Retrievers want to retrieve. Herders want to herd. Greyhounds want to run, right? I've watched your dog run around in circles around a duck pen, right? Not that those ducks need to be herded because they're in a pen, but, man, he wants to do that because it's what he's made for. It's what he's designed for. The reality is, is our hearts are the same way. Augustine probably said it best. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Right? Until we are in right relationship with Jesus Christ and living according to his design for our lives, we're at loose ends. Right? And we see a world that is at loose ends and tearing itself apart in any number of ways because it will not acknowledge the fact that you've been designed by God for a purpose. Jesus has become our brother in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ has become your big brother, teaching us the right way, modeling faithfulness for us, watching out for us. One of the things I love watching in my own children is when the older ones come alongside the younger ones and help them to do what is right, to nurture them and guide them. Big brothers stand up for you against bullies, too. And that's exactly what we see in the next passage, 14b, that Jesus Christ is victor 
for us. Okay? He is the winner. He is the conqueror for us. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. Jesus has won the battle in our place. The great bully of humankind, Jesus has defeated him and defeated the power that he has over this, and that's the power of death. He is our deliverer and our redeemer in verse 15, and delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has come in and bought us back from death, bought us back from slavery. While we languished in slavery to sin, Jesus has delivered us. Verse 16, and and really at the end of the passage, tells us that he is our helper. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. And so Christ has come to help the children of Abraham, of which you are one. He aids his people. And while Jesus cares about all his creation, he cares uniquely about his brothers and sisters in the family of God. He has become a perfect high priest for us in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Through his incarnation, he has become the perfect person to be the intermediary between the human and the divine. The person who knows God perfectly and the person who knows us perfectly. He has become our sacrifice in the second part of 17 to make a propitiation. That is a payment for wrath. Something that absorbs the wrath of God. He has made... He has he uh, made a propitiation for the sins of his people. And finally, in verse 18, he is a sympathizer. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus can sympathize with our sins, sympathize with our struggle, sympathize with our difficulty, because he has experienced. He has experienced it to the full, in fact. He's experienced it far more than you've ever experienced it. Because you cave when you were tempted. You were tempted to a certain point, and then relief comes, either in the form of God helping you to maintain or in the fact that you cave and and sin. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus experienced the full weight of temptation. Jesus' temptation was turned up to 11. And because of that, he knows exactly what it is like to be tempted, to, be, to struggle in those ways. And yet, Jesus has done that without sin. And so he can be the great sympathizer for us, able to help us when we are being tempted. Here's the deal. All those reasons, and probably um, you, could, you could break this passage down and find a dozen more in this passage. All of these things are, again, pointing us to something. They're saying, if we really thought about these truths, if we really dwelt on who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it would draw our attention to him in a way that we would not drift away. We would not just accidentally start to not pay attention and then look up one day and find that that we were not uh, focused on Jesus Christ and what he's called us to. That he would hold us to himself as we keep our gaze on Jesus Christ. As we behold Christ, we would become like him. That he would make us and form us in his own image. 
And so as you think about this passage, it's almost it, 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 it talks to a lot of worldview kind of questions. We have an end that is certain. We have a way of knowing that is certain. We have a person who has met us at every point of our need who is certain. And so if we keep our eyes focused on these, how can we ever fall away? How can we ever look away? So what I do, what I want to do as we close is just, I want to encourage you to meditate on these things. I guarantee you deal with it in the same way I do, that you deal with the same kind of situation where you feel God convict you of things and then yet uh, it, it just seems to drift away. You know what God has called you to and yet you find yourself struggling in the same way. The Bible tells us, turn your eyes to Jesus Christ, who he is, where we're going, what he has done. And in keeping our eyes on Christ, we will be able to follow him faithfully. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are good and gracious to us in everything that you do. God, we are prone to wander. God, you know that. You know that we are like sheep who, who continually go astray. And yet you have reminded us that if we keep our eyes on the shepherd, that we can be safe. If we keep our eyes on the shepherd, that we will not wander off. God, if we can always keep our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ, um, that there is, is not only security in that, God, but there is power in that. God, help us to do that. Help us to keep our eyes focused on your son, who he is, what he has done for us. God, all of his many ex excellencies, both as, as in, his, uh, in his deity, God, and in his incarnation. Um, God, help us to focus on his glories and his goodness, his love and his graciousness to us, the way he has served and sacrificed for us. God, help us to, as we focus on those things, that they would form our hearts, that they would focus our attentions, and that everything we would do, uh, everything about our lives would be focused, uh, God, on your glory. We love you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.